episode nine, we're almost in double digits, is very exciting. And this episode features Wilder Group, who is a designer and founder of Ment, which is exploring what it feels like to be a man in this day and age. We're talking lots of things, masculinity, society, equality. It's really a great conversation. So let's just get into it now. So today I'm here with my friend Will. And I'm I'm happy to use the word friend. I haven't actually seen Will for years. Mm. Maybe even I'm gonna say 10? Yeah. But um Will <laughs> gave me a great hug. And um and I'm gonna come back to that hug actually because it, it kind of encapsulates some of the things that I think we're gonna talk about today. Yeah. But first off, I just want to get you to introduce yourself. Yeah. Because I feel like you're a person of many labels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for having me, Joe, in the first instance. Um, yeah, so I guess um, my nine to five, I work in advertising and marketing um, as the co-founder and by title head of Insight, um, a, a startup called The Elephant Room. So that role is very much about gathering insight on behalf of brands. Um, and that is, I guess, my, my background and my training is as a core researcher. So um, talking directly to people about their lives. And qual means qualitative. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So quotes, conversation, not necessarily numbers, is, um, is, is more what I do. And then outside of work in that sense, um, I'm a writer. Um, so I got signed a couple of years ago to a, a literary agency Oof. yeah mad that's yeah that was a really that was a really insane thing to happen and it's taken me a while to like accept that that happened mm. um it was quite an overwhelming thing so I'm, I'm sort of working on on that aspect of my writing um and then more recently launched a platform um called mend m-e-n-d uh, which is a platform that looks to explore what it feels like to be a man right now. Um, so, yeah. I love that. So I want to go back to the hug. Mm. So the hug, I'm going to describe it for people listening. Um, <laughs> I'm excited to hear this. So Will, you know, came up to me, we put our arms around each other and the, the first thing I noticed was his puffer jacket kind of kind of decompressed a little bit which meant there was quite a nice squish yeah. but then and this is the important bit you know there's a little rub on the back there was it was not it was not a rushed hug it felt tender mm. and that's why in that hug I was like yes Will is a friend but also this is the key thing from my point of view and I always get at my male friends for this mm. they do the tap so our hugs are, there's a, mm, mm. and I don't know why I think this, but I've noticed, I noticed it when I was a child. Yeah. It's like, why is it that guys, they go, you know, pat, 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 pat. and I feel, I feel, I felt like then, I feel like now it, it takes away from the intimacy. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of bugs me. And, and I've, I've essentially conditioned my friends out of it. Yeah. Like I commented all the time. Yeah. And, um, it meant basically meant I was getting better hugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And course. that's why I wanted to start with the hug because your hug had no tap. Mm. And, um, and I suppose I'm just like, I was struck by how rare it is for 
mm. two men to have a nice hug like that unwanted yeah, I think that's really interesting because I didn't even realise that's what I'd done but um, that sort of tap I think is like two things it makes me think of two things the first thing it makes me think of is like that's like broken contact isn't it it's mm. sort of like it's it's not lingering for too long it punctuates yes yeah it's, it's kind of consciously making contact and not making contact and not but the other thing like that tapping motion especially when you're a kid what else where else do you see that and I see that as when people are like they're there mm, interesting yeah. yeah yeah or burping a, a child yeah it's that kind of yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's almost kind of like uh, you'll be all right, huh? Yeah, you know. And I think between men, that's quite interesting. Mm. Like how we display affection towards other men in our lives. There's a sort of uh, that language, I guess, is it's quite limited. So we sort of find these quite interesting ways around it. Mm. It doesn't give away too much, but it tells you just enough. Yeah, so it's kind of a hack, a motion yeah. hack. Yeah. Um, so yeah, good hugs. Great and, stuff. And there, and there, and, but I think there's something there which I want to kind of explore with you, which is that when we think about men and what it means to be a man today, mm. you know, we've already kind of just through hugging stumbled upon this um, general tension around intimacy or emotional connection mm. uh, so I wonder what your thoughts are about that I also wonder kind of how you experience that or not yourself mm. yeah? mm-hmm. I think that like one of the questions that gets asked a lot now particularly now in our culture is what does it mean to be a man and I think it's more helpful to ask the question what does it feel like to be a man right now you know like there's a slight difference there and I think it kind of shifts the focus around like actually what is it what does it feel like how do we get into the kind of um, emotional space that men sit in and I think a huge part of that challenge in starting to try and explore that is quite often particularly around the male experience that emotional language doesn't exist it's like we've never been taught it and we've never been um, encouraged to think about it we might have wanted to but it's quite difficult to find those permissive spaces where you're able to for the first time really start speaking the language of emotion mm. like I don't think that's how we socialise our men you know and so that kind of for me is a huge it's a huge area of interest in terms of like what does that look like and what does it sound like and how do we develop that um, but at the same time, it's incredibly hard because it feels like it's something where there's no blueprint or there's no template, there's no right. reference points. It's very difficult to find those reference points. And so in many ways, it's like this exercise that you're doing for the very first time. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah. So you made me think of some of the most intimate mm-hmm. ones I've seen between men have been in the martial arts space. Mm. So my doctoral research was exploring the experience of young people in a boxing intervention in East London. And, you know, some some of the stuff that came out of that was absolutely amazing. You know, typing and reading the transcripts of the Mm. interviews were just, it was special. And part of 
you know, part of it was around this deeper trust that was built. And the way people described this trust was that, that yourself almost melts away in these intense moments of, of exertion or in the intensity of a fight. Mm. And you have this unquestioning bond with another man. Mm. And there, there was an element there of trust and of understanding. Mm. And it was brought about, uh, the way they described it being brought about, one of the kind of factors which cultivated it was being pushed out of their physical comfort zone, mm. seeing that they then could achieve more. And then that built more trust in, in the coach, which then kind of led to this virtuous cycle. Mm. And that was interesting to me that such an intimate connection could come through quite a physical activity. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I wonder, the reason you made me think of that is mm. that you, you talked about it not being a blueprint and that mm. if you sat down, that a typical person kind of described that interaction, mm. I don't suppose they'd imagine intimacy. Mm. Um, and, and I mean, that we're not even getting into the intimacy that comes out of having fought with someone. Mm. You know, that, that some fighters also describe this, this bond mm. with their opponent in the sense that they allowed me to express this part of myself that mm. no one else does, mm. which is an interesting and maybe a difficult thing to connect with. Mm. Um, the, the violence could also lead to intimacy. Yeah. But when we think about there not being a, a blueprint, that makes me think, well, maybe there are no wrong answers. Mm. Yeah. And I think that's why for me, like this is, a very expansive exercise. It's something that um, I don't. It's. It, I'm kind of not here to find answers or land on answers. And I think actually, it's a far more useful exercise to be asking the questions. And particularly with men, that's kind of like I feel like at the moment there's a sort of obsession with people putting forward their truth, which I think is really important. But it's really important to also remember that your truth is a truth. It is not the truth. Yeah. And that's something that I'm really conscious of. You know, like we have this habit of imposing opinion on other people. And we have this habit of imposing a point of view on other people. Kind of going back to earlier, we were talking about our inability to listen um, and how at the minute that's kind of what it feels like. We have that absence of really taking in difference of opinion and that inability to kind of navigate that um which i find really interesting because for me it always comes back to this question of like how how serious are you really about progress because if you were really serious about it then i think we'd be we would be more concerned about reaching out and extending our understanding across different groups as opposed to just trying to defend our own mm -hmm. and i think that's quite a it's quite a big ask i think but i do think that Again, it kind of goes back to that thing. I think what we lack at the moment in our culture is good facilitators, like good mediators of conversation, whether that's through how things play out online. You know, you think about like social media and the language around social. We talk about sharing, but really we're doing anything but. Do you know what I mean? It's like the act of sharing isn't really sharing online. Um, and if it is, it's a very curated idea of what it is that we're sharing. So all those things that I think just like, again, by design, it just feels like it's tripping us up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
I really like the way that you you talked about sharing. Mm. I suppose the thing with social media is you you put stuff out there, but because of the follower dynamic, mm. actually, it, it's quite often a case that an influencer is sharing in but comments with their followers and mm. so it's quite a kind of top that it's not an equal mm. it's not an, I don't think we we we've learned to think about that as an equal mm. relationship necessarily um which is tricky it's very led by metrics isn't it defined by numbers mm. in that way which i think again is like a very misleading space to take people into and working in marketing and advertising and seeing how it works and seeing how it's spun and seeing how concerned brands are with metrics mm. as a measure of success mm. engagement you know what i mean like what is real engagement um is it about how many people <coughs> view a piece of content or i don't know like the, the gillette ad did you see the gillette ad? <laughs> yes <laughs> so everybody was talking about how many dislikes it had on youtube and I just don't think things like that matter, you know? All of it's attention, isn't it? All of it is just, um, yeah, bringing attention to to a central brand mm. message. Well, I mean, we just mentioned Gillette, so yeah. it worked in, mm. in that sense, right? Mm. You know, even if it was offensive or misjudged. Mm. But, you know, you talked about, yeah, how serious are you about change or yeah. progress? I don't, I don't, I think that, I think that's a difficult concept for people because we are so subjective and self-centered. And I, and I say that without it being a loaded term, you know, mm. as, as beings, we are self-centered um, because we experience life in the first person. Mm. And I think that the, the cul-de-sac of my truth mm. is quite compelling because actually... I care about my truth because it's my truth mm -hmm. and I care about you understanding my truth because it's my truth. Mm. And to me, I'm the star of my film. Mm. And so I think it's important for you to understand my truth. Mm. And one of my favorite, I talk about this book all the time. One of my favorite quotes of the last five years comes from a book called The Ethical Slut, which is all about looking at relationships differently. Mm. Uh, shout out Laura McInerney for the recommendation. Um, and the quote is, when you're surrounded by diversity, look for the wisdom. And I love it because it's so, so often you'll be confronted with something that feels a bit jarring or it's very different to what you're used to. And simply by using that lens of, well, what, what could the wisdom be here? Or it, it, it facilitates empathy, facilitates connection and it just it, it takes us away from that my truth mm. and, and I feel like it, it kind of brings us a bit closer to you know our truth or our progress mm. and progress is hard and messy you know like mm. if, we're, if we're going to be honest and I think we we got to a point with social media where suddenly you know it was about my truth mm. and, and I'm yet to know where we're going next because I feel like the backlash is to start censoring in a weird way, I don't know, mm. you know, but we're at interesting crossroads in terms of that. Um, I don't know what, I don't know what that means for men. Mm. Um, mm. We talked about Jordan Peterson earlier. Mm -hmm. Do you think he fits into the My Truth camp? Um, 
thing is with Jordan Peterson, and I, I haven't read a lot of his stuff. I've watched a few of his videos on YouTube. I've seen more of the content that surrounded him from the point of view of like controversies. Um, is more the kind of the side of things that I've been exposed to. There's a really interesting video on YouTube of him on this like um, debate panel where him and Stephen Fry taking the same side. And it's a really interesting um, video to watch because I think it just sort of, it's a really nice example of like, I guess, two people that um, more broadly people wouldn't have thought would kind of argue the same side of the coin. Um, but I, I, I disagree with things that he said, but what I like about him is that he challenges my thinking, you know, and I feel like that's what, that's what is catching people's attention is that he's, mm. he's provocative, um, but he's challenging people's thinking in a way that I think perhaps they haven't been challenged before. Mm. And I think the responsibility is on us then, then to, to think about how we respond to that challenge. And whilst I think things like calling out, you know, calling out, saying things that aren't acceptable is a very important part of that response. But I think another part of that response is proposing an alternative, you know. And sometimes I wonder how good we are at actually engaging the imagination and going, all right, we're very good at saying we disagree with these things, but what are we saying are tangible, viable alternatives that can capture the imagination of other people as well. Like, as much as we want to say about somebody like Jordan Peterson, look at the audience that he's engaged, you know? I think, I mean, Jordan Peterson really fascinates me. He has he has some really interesting thinking that I probably disagree with about archetypes and, mm. and um, these, these narratives throughout human history and storytelling that I think are kind of cool but I feel like he takes it to a place where I can no longer follow in terms of this whether or not that's fact mm. or, or no I, wouldn't, I don't think he'd say it's fact but how, how applicable it is mm. I think that so in my psychology training we are often talked about the phrase you know, readiness for change and, and the idea that it's important that the people that you're working with are ready for the change that you think might be the best course of action because if they're not it's not going to work and if they're not it can be harmful actually trying to facilitate that change um it needs to be a collaborative effort and with Jordan Peterson I feel like he probably has some quite sound psychological bases or foundations for what he's saying but he's saying it in a without the qualification uh of, of why without any uh, effort to make sure that people that are listening are kind of ready for that change, i.e., um, you know, he, he often uses essentially like a CBT lens, like, well, if you interpret your negative feelings like this, then you'll actually mean that you're more likely to be able to experience better mood and then you'll be more productive. And, and yeah, there's, there's truth to that, but obviously it, it does put the onus on the individual, which I think is... Uh, not that helpful. It also ignores it ignores those other variables. But he he doesn't have a therapeutic relationship with the twelve million people that are watching his video, right? So I I don't I don't think I don't think that that helps his cause. And I, and I also think that he gets angry. 
And that's a really interesting thing to observe as well, because for the most part, he's quite a, presents as quite a dispassionate academic, uses a very philosophical lens, mm-hmm. which I, I mean, I really struggle with sometimes. Um, and, you know, I think then he gets angry and provoked into saying statements which are offensive or mm-hmm. ridiculous or not thought through. And that is just tricky. Mm-hmm. But, but he, to me, is quite a, a, a kind of interestingly flawed figure because he has a high level of intelligence, a clinical practice, some really useful stuff to say, some potentially troubling stuff to say, and 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 yet also is is mm. quite vulnerable to being provoked to anger. Mm. So, and it all happens publicly. Yeah, 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 and on big platforms. Yeah, yeah. I feel like that um, that expression of anger uh, in the way that he does it as well. I would imagine a lot of people, a lot of young men watching that take gratification in seeing somebody like him with his kind of stature and his credibility and his background being able to express themselves like that mm-hmm. and be unapologetic for it, mm-hmm. you know? In terms of the anger. Yeah, you know, it's like a different expression of anger um, that's rooted in this man's an academic, you know, like there's that obviously that infamous interview with Kathy Newman on Channel 4 which I think is a really interesting thing to watch because for me it's like he knows exactly what's going on, he knows exactly how to play the game he knows exactly how these TV interviews run and I thought actually it really showed up how I mean I don't know anything about how journalists are trained and I don't want to offend any journalists like listening but I think an interesting discussion is like how do we again it goes back to that thing of like what are the techniques um, that we're using to really push people in interviews in a different way so they can't predict how to push the buttons so they can't anticipate you know because I think in that interview there's a lot of anticipating which way it's going to go it follows a certain pattern and he was ready for it you know and he really like he did a really good job of yeah, turning that around in his favour, you know, and I think... So wait, can you just describe what happened? It just becomes a very um, uh, kind of uh, high-tension interview whereby Kathy Newman's trying to pin him down on certain points and catch him out and challenge him on certain things, all of which I think are perfectly valid. And he deals with it in a very calm, collected, considered manner, which almost doesn't play to what I think you know, they almost want from something like that. They want a bit of back and forth. But he basically gets her to a point where she has to admit that she was wrong or she kind of didn't know what she was talking about or she'd lost her trail of thought, you know, and it's kind of like this victory moment for for Jordan Peterson. And I just think it's a really interesting example of techniques and strategies that people have developed to turn those moments around to their advantage. It's like mm-hmm. they know how to play the game and they won't be pinned down by it. It's like there was a time when people, you'd be interviewed by Jeremy Paxman and you know that he would nail you. But I feel like now things are kind of changing and you see people trying to hold on to that old way of kind of questioning and interrogating, but people are finding the ways to to swerve that almost, which I just think is interesting. I think it sends out a different message, you know, like kind of, you no longer have to be at the mercy of that, you know. Um, I just, yeah, which I just thought was quite interesting. And then it kind of, like, adds to this idea of, like, 
with him the cult of personality you know which is a huge thing that's followed him around and I don't know yeah academics were never cool but apparently now they are and, and interestingly he's cool but he's not cool yeah. his coolness is the fact you know he, he doesn't try to wear cool clothes no. his coolness is essentially I'm intelligent mm. and I'm kind of maybe reading between the lines here, but I would say what needs to be said. Yeah. And and actually, you know, I think in some cases he's on the money and, and those things do need to be said. And, and in other cases, I feel like he's way off the mark. Mm. Unfortunately, he's still, he's still saying these things and, and there isn't a sufficiently uh, deep dialogue mm. for anyone to really understand or for him to really understand differently. Mm-hmm. Um, that's tricky. Mm-hmm. Why? Why do you think that? Because we talked about Jordan Peterson kind of appealing to mm-hmm. young men mm-hmm. um, off the mic, and why do you think that is the case? Um, I feel like I could generate an archetypal Jordan Peterson fan in my head, and you mm-hmm. probably guess what I was thinking mm-hmm. of. You know. Mm-hmm. I think there's something, well, there's obviously something happening, isn't there, and has been happening over the past few years in Western culture. Well, not just not just sort of limited to Western culture, but um, this idea, I think you kind of just said it really, but this idea that people will say things and they are unapologetic for saying them. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll say them because they believe they're right. And it's all coming off the back of like, the idea of like being politically correct and I think a lot of people have felt silenced for a long time a lot of people have felt like they haven't been able to express their thoughts in ways that would land without being challenged or called this or called that and I think that happens on all sides you know everybody kind of feels that to an extent but I think you just have this wave of people who suddenly just sort of feel like it's legitimate and now to support openly um, views that, in my opinion, are quite can be quite dangerous and, and harmful to the rest mm. of us. But there's a legitimacy that's happened, I think. Mm. And I think it's the way that somebody like him is constructed and presented. You know, there's a lot of kind of veiled things going on there. He's obviously a super smart guy. Like, he knows what he's doing and he knows how to appeal to his fan base. Same with Donald Trump. Like, he's trying to hold on to his fan base, but... The, the entire way that he went about it was representing this figure who was rallying against the elites, you know, people that were kind of separate and removed from the day-to-day of of people on the ground. So I think, yeah, I think particularly, like, I mean, I can't, I can't talk for, like, young men in America, but I would imagine there's a lot of, like, disaffected young white men who feel like the cultural energy is no longer with them. And actually, I think that's happening here as well. I've talked to a lot of my white, middle-class, male, straight friends who... It's really interesting, man. Like, I feel like they are lost because they feel like... I almost want to say they feel like they have nothing about them, which, of course, is not true. But I think we also are living at a time where, like the cultural energy sits in lots of other areas of our society. There's a lot of dynamism um, and creativity happening in other 
um, within kind of traditionally marginalized groups in our society. Mm-hmm. That's always that's always happened, but I think the expression of that um, has become more potent and it's become more mainstream, and people are taking notice of it and people want it more. You know, look across any industry now, what is everybody talking about? Diversity and inclusion. Um, which I think is, I'm kind of in two minds about that whole argument. On the one hand, I'm all for it and always have been, but I think it's really interesting when the conversation is co-opted by white people. Um, And that's something that I've seen a lot in this industry. Um, And I think it's a conversation that everybody needs to be a part of, but I think it's interesting when people co-opt the narrative. And I, I see that that happens a lot because that comes back down to ownership. It's the very thing that we're trying to free ourselves from. Um, and it's amazing the lengths that people will go to to reinstate that, mm. that dynamic. Mm. You know, again, it's a sort of veiled thing of progress and being an ally and being champions when really if you start to break it down, nothing's really changed. So I'm quite sort of sceptical and wary of like that conversation. But yeah, so, so in that sort of climate where there's been a real shift of focus, I think... Suddenly, I think a lot of, and I don't think this is just limited to to white men, but I think a lot of men are asking themselves for the first time or being forced into a critique of who they are. You know, what am I about? Mm-hmm. And that is something that I think regardless of, of what space you hold in terms of your identity as a man, you're born with a very normal and direct connection to the world, regardless. Like, as a man, you immediately inherit the benefits and privileges that come with that, you know, in whatever structure you're born into, um, you will, you will always have that, right? So, so you're never really provoked or pushed into really questioning that. Why do you have that? What's the impact of holding that privilege on the people that are around you? Um, how do you yourself enact on it and how is it harmful to those around you? These are things that you're never really provoked to think about. And I don't think men have been for a long time. We've been holding on to this very narrow, singular idea of what success is. And I think now what we're beginning to see is a lot of men struggling with that idea of what success is as a man, you know, and that breeds shame, um, which I think is a huge area that we don't talk about. Um, so yeah, it's, I feel like it's all kind of interlinked in that way. Um, kind of going on off on a bit of a tangent but just that idea of like for the first time I guess what I'm trying to say is I feel like a lot of men a lot of young men for the first time are starting to think about what it means to be who they are Mm. in ways that perhaps they haven't had to because they look around and a lot of other people are doing it Mm. and a lot of other people are expressing themselves um and having those kind of dynamic conversations around it and actually, you know, I don't think it's been happening. I suppose it's, it's really interesting to think back at what it means to be a man over the ages, right? Mm. Because I I love the idea of the gentleman. Mm. And, you know, the, the concept of a gentleman at the time, I can't, get, I can't do the history, but we're talking kind of Tudors, Around yeah. that, that point, yeah. this is primary history. Um, but you would, you would be. It was considered cool to show emotion at, at the theatre. You might kind of let a few tears drop. It was. It was really cool to be emotional. 
And then, oh, no, I can pin it down. Maybe not Tudors, <laughs> maybe a little later. Yeah. Around the French Revolution. Mm. Prior to that, gentleman was in. And then in England, the aristocracy were worried because people were getting beheaded in France. And so they developed this concept of the stiff upper lip mm. and detaching yourself from emotion, this cool, logical mind. Mm. And so then suddenly what it meant to be a man changed. Mm. And, and so as a psychologist, I am, I am kind of minded that I do think that there are, when we're talking about sex, biological differences and that that probably does influence personality to some degree. Mm. But obviously society influences personality to another degree. And we're not quite sure exactly how much of the variance is taken up by, mm. by what. But I just feel like when we're thinking about what it means to be a man, you talked about success, mm. how it feels to be a man. Let me mm. change my language. Um, and you're talking about success. And I'm thinking about America. I'm thinking about capitalism. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about strong, silent type. I'm thinking about just get on the grind, get in the office, don't show your emotions, work long hours. Stoicism. Um, stoicism. It all gets too much. You don't share your feelings. Keep it bold inside. And you either succeed or you have some kind of crisis point and we have a, a massively disproportionate amount of male suicide mm. and have not done the reading, but I would think, I feel like it's not a giant leap to, to say that there might be a link there. And so you have the situation where it's, this is how you achieve success. Mm. Um, however, if you don't achieve success, uh, you have kind of, you're using a strategy which is, is fundamentally limited and maladaptive. Mm-hmm. And so you're kind of stuck. And I often think about society as an interesting place because we as humans have these instincts. Mm. So if someone annoys you, you might have the urge to hit them. Or if you see something you like, you might have the urge to take it. Mm. These are quite primal instincts. And yet we have this brain which allows us to think and regulate ourselves in this, in this wonderful society we have. So we are in a position where we're thinking about how we're acting to mm. some degree and changing our behavior to, to, to fit a way that we think is, is better. Mm. And I think that, you know, we do it in terms of law and order for the most part, but, mm. but in terms of how we can provide a, a model for men, we, you know, you said there, there doesn't seem to be one. I don't know that we've decided in the same way. And again, I'm not uh, a sociologist. I don't really know that much about feminism, but mm. there were different waves as far as I understand. Yes. And one of those waves was we want to emulate the male success. Mm. And then there was a backlash against that. Like, no, that's a, crap idea yeah and and i wonder if men need to go through the same process yeah so that's that's kind of what i was i was gonna say is that um like we can say that you know like um men are beginning i can say men are only just starting to really kind of critique themselves for the first time but the truth of course is that women have been doing this for decades like the feminist movement has been putting men masculinity patriarchy under that lens and under that scrutiny for decades Men have just chosen not to listen, you know. Men have chosen to ignore and resist all of that and not open themselves out to that thinking. Mm. And I think now, because of a combination of a few things, like sort of having to keep referring to him, but I think it's a really important cultural moment, is Trump and the conversations that that sparked. And I remember when he was elected 
And I remember reading an article and the headline was um, Trump selection marks, uh, what was it? Oh, it's a disaster for modern masculinity. And I remember thinking, cool, like I get what you're saying. But I also think it's the biggest opportunity that we have. You know, we have this kind of like tendency to look at it as like disaster, mm. the worst thing, and we kind of wallow in it. But what what more do you need to tell us that things have to change in terms of how we socialise men and how we socialise around what is success, how we interact with women? Like all of these things um, are perfectly captured and embodied in the current president of the United States. And I just think he's like an amazing opportunity to really have that conversation in the first instance, but then start to kind of deconstruct all of that. Mm. You know, and I think using feminism as a framework is a really good way to go about it. Um, it's what's informed my worldview and the way that I think about things. And it's a far for me personally, and I can only kind of speak from my own point of view, but it's a far more, um, it's a far healthier way of looking at the world and understanding myself within that world. Nothing to me really made sense prior to that. Mm. And I remember at uni being in the library um, and I sat and read um, a Bell Hooks book just in, in one sitting, just completely absorbed in it. And it was like somebody was articulating things that I'd always felt but never been able to articulate for myself. And I think as a reader, that's an incredible experience, mm. right? It's just like suddenly somebody is saying for you to things that you could never say for yourself. Yeah. And I think it's almost that, it's that experience that like, I'm sure, you know, and again, I talk to a lot of my, my old friends who are a similar age and like, it's not always that easy to have an open conversation about how you're feeling. And I think for a lot of people, they've never really had the training to do that or had the framework mm. by which to kind of do that mm. and have those permissive kind of spaces created for them. So I think, all of that is the work that needs to take place. But I think similarly, it's interesting what you're saying before about whether that's something that men need to undertake themselves. I always ask myself, like, as a man, can you call yourself a feminist? And I always, like, wonder about that question, you know, because you have, like, your Hollywood male celebs who sit on these chat shows and go, I'm a feminist to like yeah, yeah. rapturous applause from uh -huh. female audiences. <laughs> yeah. And then it turns out a few months, a few years later that they tried to sexually harass. You know what I mean? It all kind of, it's like you, it works for your brand right now, but we all know that, you know, so can a man call himself a feminist? I find is an interesting question because again, I always, I almost feel like um, it's contradictory in the sense of like, um, am I just by adopting that label am I just taking something that was never intended for me you know and I can't answer that question and is that just typical male behaviour entitlement you know just going to take that label because it's the easiest thing to do to jump on the bandwagon but without thinking about like without doing the work in between and I think it's a bit of a leap for men to sort of adopt, adopt it that quickly and actually there's a process whereby you kind of have to undergo the thinking and the critiquing and the questioning in order to arrive at that. But even then I was, I kind of wonder if like one of the sort of phrases that people use is having a kind of, um, what was it being, or like, what does a progressive male stance look like? Or 
you know, by taking that progressive male stance, do you then um, stand to sub- subvert a lot of these structures around patriarchal masculinity? And actually, is that a far more useful position to occupy right now than simply saying I'm a feminist? You know? And I guess it is. It's a point of language, but I just, it kind of, when you were talking about the work, it just made me think about that. Like, mm-hmm. what does that process look like for men? Um, how do men kind of um, engage in that critical assessment of themselves without jumping too far ahead too quickly? And I think that's really important. Like, we have to do that work first. Um, and I think the first part, part of that is immersing yourself in the work of women. Um, that's why when I did my did the, the launch event for men, um, it was International Men's Day. And I think I always think it's really interesting um, because it comes around every year and everyone's like, why? Like, what is International Men's Day? Like, what we... Yeah, I couldn't tell you when it was. Right, yeah. If I'm honest. Yeah, it just, it's just sort of goes under the radar. It's a bit weird, to be honest. But then International Women's Day, International Day of the Girl amazing events amazing panels amazing speakers like um i remember going to one for international day of the girl and it was just like just the most inspirational stories from charities and ngos about work that they're doing to empower women and and young girls and more often than not i'd be one of maybe three men in the room and i always left those events thinking there's a whole other half of um society that is not hearing about these stories it's not hearing about it's not hearing this conversation at all Mm. and like why is that like why don't more men attend like it's so important like but they're just completely absent in the conversation I think that says a lot so I wanted to create a space whereby it it felt more permissible or acceptable I suppose for men to enter into a space whereby we are able to talk about these things um, but the way that I framed it was I invited three women to talk about get, they each gave like a five to ten minute perspective on the men and boys in their lives and, it, and for me it had to start with women like the conversation starts with women most of the conversations I've had about this topic in my life have been with women and I don't think that's a coincidence women are the observers and the carers um, they see firsthand and they ask questions you know in ways that I think a lot of men don't and I've always found that really interesting and a lot of my female friends that have had so many questions about their partners you know they just want to get inside the head of of the men in their lives yeah. you know and I've always just felt like there's been this disconnect mm. and I'm guilty of that disconnect you know and I've really had to think about that and I've really had to do a lot of work around that and it's like if we really want to build successful loving relationships with people then that disconnect is something that we all need to kind of have a look at and we all need to have a think about because we're all responsible for it but the way that we begin to do that is by listening to each other and understanding each other's experiences and I've just kind of felt like not enough women I'm I'm talking in binaries here and of course it, it sort of manifests in different ways but I just felt like not enough women were hearing about the reality of the lived experiences of men and the point of view of what they're feeling and not enough men had heard how women are impacted by that, mm. you know? Um, yeah, that's a really interesting way to put it. I kind of want to unpick what you were talking about a bit more because, firstly, I love, I would love to think more about what that male introspection could look like 
uh, because I I really agree that to me when you know when you say what what could it be like to be a man that's quite exciting mm. um, and it feels progressive mm. fundamentally right in the sense that and I'm just rambling on this theme really but because men have been in a position of power and relative stability actually they haven't had to think about whether they want to change the model of what it feels like to be a man because it mm. was the default white men well yeah I, I kind of thought about that as I said it and I suppose that's why I said relative mm. I feel like even in uh, societies that aren't rich or, mm. or have experienced colonialism there's generally that. been a kind of uh, patriarchal structure there mm. um, but yeah I take that point um, but I think that so when you were talking about your own journey mm. um, it was really interesting to kind of hear you talk about the role that women played <laughs> <laughs> And yet you also talked quite passionately about men not calling themselves feminists or whether they could. Mm. And I suppose to me, just hearing you kind of in in the space of five minutes talk equally passionately about both those things, I kind of wondered whether, yeah, I wanted to hear more about that Mm. because it almost, it seemed a bit contradictory from yeah. where I'm sitting I don't know I think they're both things that are like unresolved in my mind like mm-hmm. I'm still trying to figure out what I mean by them but I think I just have like a, I'm very sceptical about men like I don't really trust the intention of men and I say that as a man you know and that's because of things I've picked up throughout my life and particularly in the world of work like I spend most of my time in the world of work but I'm very sceptical of men if I feel like that how on earth does it feel to be like a woman under that mm. structure mm. or some other so-called minority or marginalized? You know what I mean? It's like, if my experience sits closest in proximity to these people who sit at the top of that structure, then, oh my God, like... Uh, what do you mean by sceptical of men? I don't, I just don't think I trust the intention of men. Um, which, I don't know, I don't know that I've ever actually kind of thought about, thinking about it now, mm. I feel like that's what I mean, is that I'm always quite sceptical of what men truly intend or what sits behind um, the way that they present themselves, the way that they withhold information, you know? I think a lot of men withhold information. Mm, That's interesting. And that as a means of control, Mm. you know? Um, I'm always very conscious of, like... um, Especially in the world of work, I'm always very conscious. I don't like people. I don't like that feeling of ownership, as if somebody owns me. You know, I feel that sometimes in the world of work. So all of those things that, and they're not things I've ever felt from women ever. I feel like it's an explicitly and acutely male behaviour mm. to act with dominance and to act with authority and to act with a sense of ownership. And I'm not talking about an ownership over things talking about ownership over people you know and whether that's conscious or otherwise like I really think that's inherent to the way that a lot of men behave whether they're aware of it or not you know I'm aware of it because I feel it um that's so interesting and I think just thinking about 
society history mm. actually men have engaged with property uh, throughout right and whether that has been things women people, mm. slaves you know the, the, mm-hmm. there are there are examples of, of that kind of expression of, of power uh, for sure um, I, I, I mean I definitely could think of some people who I know who would probably say I'm a feminist mm. and they're men and it's probably just because they think it makes them more attractive mm. <laughs> to yeah, women yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I also think that it makes me a, a bit uncomfortable or sad when I hear you talk about men like that. Mm. I, I, I recognize the truth in what you're saying in terms of not this, you know, your truth, hashtag your truth. Mm. I mean, I, 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 that resonates. I, I do think mm. that um, men can be uncomfortable in that way in terms mm. of the, the power dynamics. And, and, I, and I'd love to talk, maybe this is another conversation with other people, I don't know, about uh, male sensitivities to power mm. dynamics. Maybe... Yeah, who knows? Anyway, um, it makes me feel a bit sad and, and, and uncomfortable when I hear you talk about men in terms of, you know, not truly engaging with what it would mean to want equality for women mm. or whether that would even be possible. Mm. Um, Can I ask why that makes you uncomfortable? Because I think it... It just makes me feel a bit sad about the prospects for, for mm. mankind, you know, male kind. Mm. Um, I think, I think also it should be an it should be an easy thing to want to support someone's equality. Yeah. Um, so. Although I, you know, I recognise that there's a a really big difference between superficially being like, yeah, equality would be cool, and then. On, on a real level being like oh but I don't actually want to give up my current situation mm. or facilitate that equality yeah and I think that's the struggle so there's a power struggle that's inherent in that whereby that idea of like relinquishing control or as you said it giving up I think is a really hard thing a really hard space to move a lot of men into like how do you give up things that you've always you've always had it's always been a given you know what I mean like mm. how do you relinquish control over things that you've already you've always had control over mm. um, and I think that's a that's a key question you know that that for me is sort of central to a lot of this is like the unwillingness of a lot of people to admit that they might not know you know the unwillingness of other people take a moment to listen to other people who offer a different perspective and see that perspective as equally legitimate mm. to theirs mm. and I just you know and I, I, again I start saying people because I don't think that's just limited to men singularly I think mm. that's a far more kind of a human thing but um, yeah I, I suppose I I have had conversations recently uh, with friends and I feel like some of them might say, do you know what? Society in England is more equal than it's ever been. And it's, in, it's getting increasingly more equal. Um, and to some degree, you know, 
historically positions of power have always been held by men mm -hmm. and that's starting to change and that there, there just needs to be a churn effect I wonder how you, I don't know why that came into my head, but I wonder what you think about that in terms of a view. Mm. Um, I, I guess it, it came to me because we were talking about the relinquishing of power. Yeah. Uh, and, and I suppose one argument would be we're at the start of that curve, mm. but we need time for it to take effect. 100%. Yeah. And these aren't like we're talking about centuries of like centuries of a particular structure so it's not going to change overnight but I also think that sometimes like the changes that we celebrate how big are they actually do you know what I mean and I think we have to be careful sometimes to not get caught up in um, what I feel like sometimes is a bit of a myth around the degree to which things are changing and obviously there's always progress and but I do think at the same time like a lot of people are still benefiting from the systems that we find ourselves in and equally a lot of people are being pushed right to the bottom um, with the intention of them staying there mm. you know and again just speaking kind of on broader societal terms but it's like that is the structure that we still live in and under and around you know the idea that that is um, changing I think is I would question the sort of the the degree to which it's changed. Mm. I think people are starting to ask the questions and I think people are more empowered than they ever have been to have a voice and to have a platform to call that stuff out. But there are still things that I, I, I really struggle to call out and I, I get frustrated with myself for not being able to do that there and then. Um, Can you kind of think of an example? I've had instances, so two, two examples, I guess. One, um, at a previous place of work and being around colleagues who at best were ignorant and at worst racist and um, being half Japanese and, and overhearing certain terms being used indirectly and directly around me. Um, I found myself in a circle of seven, eight white colleagues where I'm having to educate them on why that's not okay and I'm very conscious that everybody else is silent mm. and I'm very conscious that nobody else is saying anything and I'm also very conscious that had I not been there nobody would have even realized that that wasn't okay so in my adult life finding in my adult working life finding myself in those spaces is a very uh it was a very alarming experience and it set in motion for me uh, the realisation that I did no longer want to work in this space. That was mm. enough for me to be like, right, I'm, I'm tapping out because I don't need to be around that. And I think what was really interesting about that experience is that I went into that place of work very confident and very centred around who I was and what I was about and what I was confident and comfortable with. And by the end of the nine months that I was there, I was just completely decentered by that experience and it really shook me. And it's taken a lot to get back to a point where I feel like I am comfortable with these areas of myself because it's almost like in your own sort of naivety, for some reason I thought, you know, all of that shit's left behind mm -hmm. at school or but the shock of seeing it in the place of work is, mm -hmm. you know, that was something that really kind of it shook me like it really did and um, 
I had a very sort of visceral reaction to it there and then. And I think that just told me a lot. You know, it's kind of like, these are things that I will defend, but I should never be in a position where I have to defend those things to well-educated people, you know, but that's the reality, you know, and some people might think, oh, that's nothing. Like, like worst things have happened to people. Absolutely. And I would say that's very true. But I don't think you can underestimate, and I think this goes for a lot of people of colour in the workplace, you can't underestimate the emotional labour of existing in these spaces. And when we talk about diversity and inclusion, like I think it's convenient for people to talk about uh, new programmes that they're getting in to businesses that help young wave of talent coming in. And I think it's easy for people to say, we've got a new head of diversity and inclusion in this organisation as if it's kind of quick fix, right? Mm-hmm. But... I also feel like inclusion as a concept, yeah, like inclusion is also feeling, right? Inclusion is something that you walk around an office space or a given space and you feel. And that's something that I think some people are aware of and something, and also something that some people have never had to think Mm. about, right? So again, it's just that a lot of it for me comes down to that idea of like how we feel in these spaces. And in that particular instance, I was very ready to, to tap out. Mm. But it's been a really interesting one to reflect on because it really reminded me that actually like I'd naively walked into this space thinking people weren't like that or people wouldn't be like that, at least not to my face. Or, yeah, um, yeah. But they were. So. I think emotional labour is a really interesting term to use. Mm. I can imagine... It was pretty draining. Mm, Absolutely. (laughs) Um, I was thinking about emotional labour in terms of men the other day Mm. because I think I was introduced to the term in relation to um, an article about chores, household chores and how they're divided up and the emotional labour of noticing things first and then having to decide whether to do something about it or then leave it for someone else to do something about it. I suppose that's kind of broadly, you know, broadly could be applied to your experience. Like, mm. do I say something now or wait and hope that one of my colleagues picks this up for me? Yeah. Um, and, and that's tough. Uh, you know, it's kind of a lose-lose, really, because mm. you either exert the effort uh, or you suffer in silence and, and leave us great. But in terms of suffering in silence, mm. I, I, I kind of wonder how the term emotional labour could be applied to what we talked about in terms of this archetype of, of masculinity, mm. which is quite often, you know, lacking the tools of communication and emotional mm. connection mm. because it's it's internalised. You know, there, there is an internalised process there of, of emotional regulation or, or lack of, you know... Um, and that I feel is probably draining as well. I, I don't know what you think about that. I kind of just made that up on the spot. No, yeah, I think I think that's I think that's a very real thing. Um, I think it's always tricky when we talk about like um, there's a real sensitivity to talking about men's needs because mm-hmm. I think there's a very real danger, and that that in part has been what's been quite difficult about men is like there's a very real danger that you, that people assume that it's some like men's rights movement mm. thing. Right. And actually it's like 
trying to be anything but, but the difficulty in trying to create something that looks at the experiences and champions the experiences of men that isn't immediately put in that bracket, I think is really, that's a really interesting challenge that we face at the moment. And I think in part, like I was just thinking as you were talking then, but I think one of the phrases that um, somebody used um, and I've used before in, in writing is like this idea of like the conspiracy of silence. And I think that's something that we are all as a society complicit in. So whether you're looking at um, Jimmy Savile, if you're looking at Harvey Weinstein, you're looking at Kevin Spacey, you're looking at R. Kelly, right? All these men who for decades got away with the most horrific of abuses and everybody else that knew about it, you know, um, but nothing was ever said or done until very recently and, there's been that breakthrough moment in culture that's been led by women and being led by women of colour, you know? And I think, again, that's something that's really important to not forget. Um, Tarana Burke, like, when people think about Me Too, like, who are they thinking about immediately? And I'm not sure. I think sometimes people forget where these movements started. That's a, that's a different point. But um, everybody is complicit in this. And I think that's a really interesting thing to think about because off the back of that the language that we use around men now if you're a young man listening in on a conversation around men and masculinity in 2018-2019 you're hearing the term toxic you're hearing the term mansplain you're hearing the term abuser you're hearing you know all these things that are very true but I don't know how helpful it is and I think we sometimes indulge phrases like toxic masculinity a little bit too much I think people have made a joke and make light of this idea of mansplaining as well. It's become this sort of quick retort um, aimed at sort of cutting people down. But I think another side to that, and I, I understand that we need to identify it by naming it and calling it out for what it is. But I think another side of that is that a lot of young men feel very lost and confused about what it means to be a man, but also feel pushed into a corner where they can't speak. And we talk about Jordan Peterson earlier. He represents that voice for a lot of young men, or a lot of young men think that he represents that voice for them. And I guess what I'm saying is that we need to provide and propose alternative voices that are equally compelling. But in order to do that, we kind of have to engage with ourselves mm -hmm. and engage our imaginations in order to create those narratives. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're not doing, because the dominant narratives right now are, you are toxic, um, and you mansplain mm. uh, or you're a metrosexual um, or you're a spornosexual what's that? spornosexual is a more recent one which is where men now my understanding is that men now um, aspire to have the physique of a cross between an athlete and a porn star and it's interesting to me how we adopt these phrases yeah spornosexual mm, so I guess like sport and porn right yeah yeah, yeah. okay yeah i think um but it's interesting to me how we adopt these and they get very quickly brought into what's the right phrase like is lexicon the right word? like yeah. the rhetoric the you know like the mainstream culture adopts these for it the zeitgeist baby right yeah and it's like cool but how helpful are these these terms really it's like well and equally you, you talked about naming it to understand it yeah uh, and you also talked about with men once you had 
put a name on this mm. concept, it, it gathered traction and interest. And so I'm worried about spornosexual because is is that a thing? I think it, it fucking is a thing now, isn't it? Oh yeah. <laughs> Once it's got a name. It's yeah, a yeah, thing. No, it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. But then like I think it'd be interesting to look at it and what if we called it body dysmorphia? And actually there's a lot of research that looks at teenage boys and body dysmorphia and their behaviour um, and the pressures that they feel on social media because, of, you know, are we talking about these things? I'm not sure that we really are. Um, Although, I mean, that's quite a within-person label <laughs> and I suppose I'm, I'm struck by how at the moment it seems that emotional regulation strategies for men are typically within person just kind of think your way out of your emotions mm-hmm. um, the models for male success are quite individual mm-hmm. you know just grind hard and become the CEO that's a good position to mm-hmm. inhabit and so now if we also label the kind of issue as mm-hmm. you know, I, I know you're not suggesting that we should um, start you know labelling young boys as body morphic necessarily mm-hmm. but you know if we start labelling uh, masculinity as a within-person mm. problem, uh, I feel like we have... I feel like we're, we're doing a disservice to the potential routes forward, which I feel like a social or collective... Yeah, you know? yeah. No, I agree. And I wouldn't... Um, you know, I'm not here saying... Uh, You're not here doing labels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, if anything, kind of um, the opposite. But I think it's more just like... How do we look at the same... We're all looking at the same problem, but we're giving it different names. <laughs> and so I'm interested in how we surface all of those different names and then have a conversation about, yeah. let's thrash it out. Like, let's really look at this from all angles. And that is a way of bringing people in from all sides. You know, that's a way of facilitating a conversation mm-hmm. that everybody has a stake in. And again, I think that's something that's really important to remember. Like, I don't think that's, I don't think that's too much to ask, to be honest. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know why we always have to have these kind of oppositional viewpoints on things. Mm. And I think sometimes it's, it's, it comes down to how ready and open we are as individuals to be a part of that conversation, but then also how that conversation is facilitated. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I rate that. Okay. Talk, more talk is good. Yeah. <laughs> In and short. In short. So I feel like we've been on an epic journey mm. um, and I've really enjoyed it. I suppose you, you casually dropped bell hooks in about, mm. about 10 minutes ago. And, and I always like to ask people if they have a kind of recommendation for people in terms of blogs or yeah. authors. And, and, I, and I feel like in terms of masculinity and also feminism, you might have some really cool recommendations. Yeah. 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 I think, um, Stuff that I've read recently, or I kind of I've have this sort of um, list of books, um, and the title is basically it's basically books that have got me through the past eighteen months, um, and I've really I've really relied on books in the past eighteen months in a way that I never have done, mm. like in my life. Like books have really got me through a lot in that time, um, and it's a really broad kind of spectrum of of writers and and thinkers but the ones that have really 
stuck with me or caught my attention are the ones that are really looking critically at questions of identity as it relates to men. So anything from kind of going back to James Baldwin, who just is like, when you revisit his work, like I, I feel almost like, I felt like I, I feel like I came, I arrived at James Baldwin really late for some reason. I've only really started immersing myself in his work in the past couple of years, but like to think that he was writing about the things that he was writing about at the time that he was writing about, why any of us are fearful of like putting stuff out. Like the man was saying and doing these things at a time where like, I mean, it's just insane. You know what I mean? Talking about race and sexuality and like politics. And it's just, it's, it's phenomenal. Like his body of work is phenomenal. And I think like that serves as a really good reminder, like any kind of James Baldwin like his essays, his talks on YouTube, like the clips that are up there. Um, I, would, I would always sort of recommend, just as a reminder that like, despite the time that you're living in, like you always, you can have a voice. Do you, know mm. what I mean? you can put out ideas, even if it feels like you're up against like the biggest challenges and obstacles. Um, there's another writer who I met recently called Michael Amherst. And he wrote a book called Go the Way Your Blood Beats, which is a, um, it's a quote from a James Baldwin essay. And he talks about, that's about his personal kind of um, experiences and observations around, I think the, sub, the subheading is on masculinity, desire, love and bisexuality. And again, I, can, I just completely consumed that in an evening because it was just like, here, reading a man write about love um, and desire and breaking it down and deconstructing what it meant for him and what the implications of his own attraction and desire were, like, that was something that I was like, this is a healthy read and it's an important read. Um, and I think it's one that a lot of people would benefit from, from reading as well. Um, there's another author that I found this year called Alexander Chi who wrote, so he's half Korean, half American, and he wrote, he's written a book called um, How to Write an Autobiography. Um, and it's not necessarily about that, it's more about his relationship with writing and being a mixed race queer kid growing up in the States and um, his experiences kind of surrounding that. But again, like, these are men who are occupying sort of spaces within the sort of spectrum of masculinity that are writing about it from a critical angle. And I just find that, really interesting um and then the last one is it's a really short essay um called mixed race superman by a writer called will harris who i think i think i'm right in saying he's half english half chinese um forgive me if i've got that wrong it's a short essay where he talks about neo in the matrix and obama and what they represent in relation Amazing. to his own mixed raceness and i would really recommend that um Brilliant. so yeah they're there's some books and where can people find you uh, you can find me um, Twitter at Will DeGroot um, D-E-G-R-O-O-T Instagram at Will.DeGroot and then Mend.World www.mend.world for I guess yeah stuff that's focused around that work yes and it was so good to talk to Will and I would love to hear everything that you thought about the episode. I feel like we covered so many interesting topics and I would really value you getting in touch. So look in the show notes, you can find where you can contact me, where you can contact Will, 
where you can find out more about MEND and their activities. And please subscribe and share. And let's keep this thing going. Next episode, double digits. Sizzle.